0: You are a gracious God and loving Heavenly Father. You are indeed a God of love. Love that, uh, which you were immersed in the uh, Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, loving one another, perfect communion of love. We thank you for your generosity that you, in your great love, created a creation to receive your love. That you made this world, you made us, to know your love, to receive it, uh, to rejoice in it, to live in it. Father, we thank you for the life that you give us, life that is a gift of your love. And Lord, as we, uh, yet as we look around the world, we see so often that there is death, that there is um, that which is against life, that there is trouble. Um, but Lord, as we uh, reflect on this season of Advent and today, the first Sunday, the Sunday of hope, you give us hope. We thank you for your powerful hope, Uh, hope for all of us, hope for those who are grieving, hope for those who are in distress, hope that keeps it going, hope that we shall one day fully be in your glory. Father, we thank you for your love expressed in your faithfulness to your promises, that you promised that you would have a people for yourself, and that you're in the process of fulfilling that. We thank you for your fulfillment of that hope in sending the Lord Jesus, who is your righteousness, in whom your righteousness is fulfilled. And that as we are in him, we are in your family, enfolded into your hope, enfolded into your love as your beloved people. So we pray today that you would assure us of that love and of your good and kind intentions for us, so well expressed in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray for those uh, who mourn, uh, those who um, uh, struggle to know that love and that hope. Uh, we give you thanks for uh, Rosa um, and her love and faithfulness to you and pray that you would comfort David and the rest of her family, that you would be close to them in this time of sorrow, um, yet also time of giving thanks for life well lived and of that wonderful gift. Father, we look at the Middle East and the resumption of hostilities, and it's hard to see any hope there. And we pray uh, for those who are seeking to mediate um, and seeking to bring hope. Pray particularly for those who are in the middle, the peacemakers, uh, those who are seeking to bridge the divide and pray particularly for your your people, for the Christians there in that troubled land. And we long that there would be peace um, and that, you would bring that to that land. Father, we rejoice in new life. We rejoice with uh, Eric and Hannah in the gift of Joseph, and pray that he may grow up uh, in their love and care and come to know you as his beloved father. So we give thanks for that gift of life. And now, Lord, as we are gathered together as your people to sing your praises, uh, to pay attention to the scriptures, um, pray that you would uh, our hearts and minds would be open to you to receive your love and to respond uh, in our praise and our worship and our devotion to you in the Lord Jesus. Pray for Brian as he brings your word in this uh, wonderful um, song that Hannah, that, uh, that Mary sang uh, echoing Hannah of old, and that you would uh, give him the right words to say and give us listening ears. Father, we love you. You are a God who loves us, and we bask in that love and return it to you in our praise and obedience uh, as we live out our lives, uh, empowered by your spirit. we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Our scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter nine. Uh, Familiar words, especially at this season of Advent and Christmas. And I'm gonna read from the message. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, For those who lived in a land of deep shadows, light, sunbursts of light. You repopulated the nation, you expanded its joy. Oh, they're so glad in your presence, festival joy. The joy of a great celebration, sharing rich gifts and warm greetings. For a child has been born for us, the gift of a son for us. He'll take over the running of the world. His names will be Amazing Counselor, Strong God, Eternal Father, Prince of Wholeness. His ruling authority will grow, and there'll be no limits to the wholeness he brings. He'll rule from the historic David throne over that promised kingdom. He'll put that kingdom on a firm footing and keep it going with fair dealing and right living, beginning now and lasting always. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do all this. The word of the Lord. Brian, come and share with us.
1: Thank you, Ber- <clears throat> thank you Bernard, and thank you to our deacons. Also to Valerie, who decorated our uh, church for Advent. Thank you. Getting up at 4.30 this morning, right, Ben? Yes. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we come to his word. Our Father, the season of music, we come at Advent, anticipating your birth and the resounding praise that touched all the little people in the Gospels. Help us enter into that at this season. Um even with mixed emotions of pain in our world. Let our world see the baby Jesus, the birth of the Savior in all its glory around the world this year. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Advent is the season of music. And as you know, music has an incredible power to awaken dull minds, stir the emotions, activate our wills with tremendous force, consider the stirring sounds of a lone trumpet playing taps or a bagpiper's penetrating notes of amazing grace at a funeral, or the heart-stopping beat of massive drum roll of a marching band at a football game. That's where most Americans have their passion. Music can be revolutionary, invading secular minds, breaking down hard hearts, touching individuals with dimension of what is holy. My favorite musical, Les Miserables. Do you hear the people singing the songs of angry men? Here is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums, there is a life about to start when tomorrow comes. Well, this is 1 Samuel opens with the story of God inaugurating a new beginnings through a barren woman after 40 years of spiritual compromise with the birth of Samuel the prophet. So Luke's gospel opens with stories of two miraculous births following 400 years of silence. The first records the birth of John to Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah. The second, the birth of Jesus to Mary. Luke is not introducing a new story, but continuing and advancing the story of God's work of saving the world to its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. These boys will grow up to become agents of God's long-promised revolution, the victory over the powers of evil. Now, the fact that God is taking his revolution to us unprecedented levels is further heightened by the fact that these twin births are climaxed with not one or two, but four songs of praise. The first is Mary's song, known as the Magnificat. The second, Benedictus, is sung by John's father, Zachariah. The third song, the angels sing, glory to God in the highest, or in Latin, gloria in excelsis Deo. And the fourth song is the song of Simeon, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel and he praised the Lord saying, now you may dismiss your servant in peace. So this morning we'll look at the first song, the Magnificat to Mary. We'll look at her, the announcement to her, followed by her visit to her relative Elizabeth and conclude with her song, the Magnificat. So Luke chapter one, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Well, the first hint that revolution is in the air is the presence of the archangel Gabriel who stands before God in his court and who we know from the book of Daniel is an eschatological messenger sent from God to help the prophet interpret visions regarding the last days. Now, after centuries, God has sent him again from heaven to announce two miraculous births. Earlier in Luke, he was sent to the spiritual center of Israel, the holy place at the temple, to announce John's birth to the officiating priest, Zechariah. The scene is filled with several echoes from the birth of Samuel, Israel's first prophet. But unlike Hannah, Zachariah is slow to believe in God's promise, and rather than rejoicing in thanksgiving and song, he is struck dumb, symbolic of the nation's spiritual insensitivity. Despite his hardness of heart, Elizabeth received the ability to conceive and by the grace of God, her status among God's people is restored. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent Gabriel back to earth for a second announcement, to Mary, far away from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem to Nazareth in Galilee, insignificant, despised, unclean. These two women represent two generations in Israel, the old and the new. Elizabeth is old beyond the childbearing years and though she is the daughter of Aaron, being barren, she has suffered disgrace. She typifies Israel's estrangement from God and disgrace from being oppressed by foreign tyrannical foreigners. Mary represents the new Israel. She's young, most likely 12 or 13 years of age and is introduced as if she were an orphan with no family background provided. She's betrothed to Joseph, but as such, she has not entered into his house or inherited his status. Yet she is favored by God, though for no apparent reason other than God's gracious choice. Well, in this revolution, the main players are the little people, who by the world's standards have either lost their status or never had any status to rely on. As in Hannah's story, status is redefined and restored by one's faith. And in Luke, these little people become the heroic models of faith and trust. Three times we're told Mary is a virgin and when offered the choice to cooperate with God's saving activity, she must by faith count the cost of suffering shame for becoming pregnant prior to marriage and face the possibility of losing her status in Joseph's household. Will she do it? Can you imagine the stress, the thoughts, the fear? Well, the angel greets Mary with rejoice, favored one. The Lord is with you. Joy is to fill her heart because she is the recipient of God's undeserved grace and such favor raises her status to that of the greatest leaders in Israel. The phrase, I will be with you, conveys much more significance than a generic promise of God's traveling presence. It is most often addressed to Israel's leaders when they're called to a task of insurmountable odds like the Exodus or when setting out on an undertaking that seems very likely to fail. This was God's pregame speech to Moses before he sent him off to Egypt to confront Pharaoh. So now God gives the same speech to 12-year-old Mary. If she'll respond in faith, the omnipotent God will be with her to protect, to encourage, to strengthen her until the task for which she has been called is completed. That's what it means when the Bible says God is with you Called by grace, with results that are guaranteed, that is the cause for joy. But that's only the half of it. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over his house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. It's a little, a lot of theology for a young woman. To the bewildered Mary, Gabriel explained she'll be the mother of Israel's long expected king, God's very own son who'll be given the throne of his father, David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and the kingdom will never end. Gabriel's words echoed the language of other birth announcements, especially the one given to Sarah, coupled with Daniel's description of the exaltation of one like the son of man. And taken together, one cannot help but be overwhelmed. This is the climactic moment of history, the restoration of Israel and the salvation of the entire world. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age is also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. With these complex expectations whirling in her head, Mary asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? Unlike Zachariah's unbelief that seeks for a sign, Mary's question asks for an explanation so that she can understand the supernatural way the process will unfold. And Gabriel's answer reveals that though Mary indeed will play a role as an obedient recipient of grace, the miracle will be all God's doing. Now Joel Green points out that these first two clauses of Gabriel's response parallel one another and prepare for the third. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Consequently, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Do you ever think this is what happens to you at your conversion? (laughs) These two lines bring together God's omnipotent power, manifest, in his spirit with absolute holiness. Holiness. You know, in the book of Judges, the leaders had the power of the spirit, but absolutely no character. Judges was a disaster. With the coming of Jesus, the pouring out of his spirit at Pentecost, leaders demonstrate the power of the spirit by means of what? Holy, Character. I think this is the right day to uh, inaugurate deacons. You know, the qualifications of deacons and elders, there's only one aspect for elders of even of a mention of a spiritual gift It's just apt to teach, and many gifts can apt to teach. Everything else character, isn't that amazing? And I'm am so thankful. I've been at this church for 50 years. And that's been the mark of all our character. <laughs> our leaders, godliness. Gabriel concludes with a reminder to Mary of God's omnipotent power. Now the NIV better translates the verse. It's literally no word from God will ever fail. Which makes it a little more specific. When God gives a word, every word will be fulfilled. And these words ignite her memory of the Lord's statement to Sarah in Genesis 18, is anything impossible with God. And with that final word, Mary's faith leaps over the wall. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Like Abraham, Mary gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform. The personal and social cost of Mary in making such a commitment is difficult to comprehend, but as Joel Green comments, her faith is revolutionary and becomes a model for all Israel. He writes, Mary's response to the divine announcement contrasts sharply with Zacharias, with the result that she, surprisingly, in scenes of this type, has the last word. She unreservedly embraces the purposes of God, without regard to its cost to her personally. In describing herself as the Lord's servant, she acknowledges her submission to God's purpose, but also her magnificent role in assisting that purpose. Moreover, she claims a place in God's household, so to speak. Indeed, in this socio-historical context, her words revitalize and actually place in jeopardy her status in Joseph's household, and for her, Partnership and the purpose of God transcends the claims of family. Got that parents? For her, partnership and the purpose of God transcends the claims of family. Now the result of all this is that Mary, who in that world would have been at the bottom of the social scale in terms of age, family, heritage, gender, and so on, turns out to be the one favored and exalted by God. In this revolutionary kingdom, one's status is defined by one's obedience to God and the privilege of being used for his saving purposes. And now this theme is reinforced in Luke's description of her journey to see her Aunt Elizabeth, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town and Judah, and she entered in the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So having been touched by an angel, Mary breaks with all social conventions to journey by herself, get this, some 70 miles to the hill country around Jerusalem to be with her aunt. If that was my daughter, it'd be over my dead body. (laughs) As a young girl, Mary would have never been allowed to venture outside the home without accompaniment, even in her own town, let alone travel clear across the country. She must have taken God's promise seriously that the Lord would be with you. You remember how Hannah was a woman who to be reckoned with, who stand on her own two feet. Mary is a woman who runs on her own two feet. Verse 39, and when Elizabeth heard and greeted Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this been granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, the sound of your greeting came to my ears. The baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Well, in spite of her at-risk adventure, Elizabeth responds to her greeting with enthusiastic joy because of the larger realities that are developing in their respective wombs that transcend social and cultural norms. Three times, Luke mentions Mary's greeting and the impact it had upon Elizabeth and the unborn John. Upon hearing Mary's voice, the Holy Spirit completely takes over, overwhelms everyone with joy, including the unborn John. In Mary's voice, John recognizes the Lord to come, and though he cannot speak, he manages to leap. Elizabeth is instantly filled with the Spirit and gives the divine interpretation of all that occurred and blesses Mary for her obedience. How revolutionary is all this? There's something remarkably new here. In previous Annunciation scenes, when an announcement of a child was made to a barren woman, there was always the painful pre- presence of jealousy between two rival women. You have Sarah and Hagar, Rachel and Leah, and finally Hannah and Peninnah, Pain, competition, resentment. But what happens now? With the announcement of the coming of Christ in the messianic age, we notice no pride by Mary or or resentment by Elizabeth, but instead what? Mutual respect and deep affection for one another. Each woman rejoices in the grace given to the other. Forget this, in the kingdom of God, There is absolutely no competition. In the kingdom of God, there's no competition. Everybody has a unique place. It's like in an orchestra. Everybody plays a unique uh, instrument. Every person's listening to the director, which is Jesus, when to come in, when to play. No competition, only mutual appreciation. Everyone complements each other with their different gifts and personality. And on some occasions, the older and more experienced individual steps aside to bless the younger and less experienced as having a greater role to play and finds their greatest joy in a supporting role. And this will exemplify John's relationship with Jesus. Jesus says of John, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. John was the last prophet in Israel who came to anoint Israel's final king. His word was so powerful that all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. But from John's point of view, his sole purpose was to prepare the way of the one who was coming, who was greater than he. His motto was, he must increase, I must decrease. And that's the authentic mark of God's people in the age of the spirit. I think it's significant as well that Mary's response to Elizabeth's praise is to graciously step aside, diverting it all upward to God in jubilant song. The Magnificat is one of the most famous songs in Christianity. Tom Wright says it's been whispered in monasteries, chanted in cathedrals, recited in small remote churches by evening candlelight, and set to music with trumpets and kettle drums by Bach. And then Bernard reminded me that this text has been set to music more than any other text in Scripture. So I thought instead of me singing it to you, I would invite Carol Day to come and sing it to you. Welcome, Carol. Carol. Thank you, Carol. Well, much of Mary's song echoes the song of Hannah from First Samuel 2, which celebrated the birth of Samuel and all that God was doing through him. Now these two mothers-to-be celebrate together what God is doing through their sons, John and Jesus. Tom Wright says, in many cultures today, it's the women who really know how to celebrate, to sing and dance with their bodies and their voices, saying things far deeper than words. Well, I read the poem as two stanzas with two individual strophes. In the first stanza, if you go to the first one, Mary articulates her praise and the reasons for her praise. And in the second stanza, she details the great reversals and applies them to Israel. So verses 46 and 47, coming right from 1 Samuel 2, Mary burst into wholehearted praise because of her personal encounter with the Lord who took note of her lowly estate and chose her to, be, to birth the Savior into the world. She's consumed with joy. She comes to realize that the eschatological coming of God is at hand. And drawing upon the memory of Hannah's prayer, if you'll indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me, Mary is overwhelmed that God is doing for her what he did for Hannah. Yet in Mary's case, the gift came without Hannah's pain or even her petition or her vow. Mary is chosen to be part of God's revolution for seemingly no reason, except that the Lord had regard for her lowly, humble estate. And that's what God does for us. Doing so much for us for no reason. And this is what motivated her to turn her life completely over to God's saving purposes. From Mary's point of view, being a bond slave in God's household is the most exalted position in life for she knows that what God has done for her will be lauded for every generation. The virgin birth will be cataloged in the list of great things that Israel celebrated in their liturgy to remind themselves of the many acts of salvation God has done on their behalf. The exaltation of the lowly is Mary's understanding of how God supremely manifests his holiness in the world. And she leaves the door wide open, reminding us that his amazing grace is available to any who humble themselves to fear the Lord. Well, that's the first stanza. The second stanza, Mary projects from the great things God has done in her womb to the great things God has done for Israel. As in Hannah's song, the story is of awesome reversals that turn the pecking order of Israel's social world on its head. The opening line resonates with the striking allusions to Israel's exodus. When the Lord became Israel's mighty warrior and bared his holy arm and scattered his enemies to redeem his people with great judgments. Mary is announcing that the new exodus which the prophets had promised and that Israel had longed for was now here. This is a decisive moment in history when there's gonna be a radical shift in the existing power structures. God is exercising his omnipotent power pulling down all the potentates and placing the humble in their place. The proud who grasp for positions of honor will be scattered, brought down, and sent away empty-handed. After Herod, whose casual brutality was backed by Rome, had James the brother killed, the angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten with worms. After the Emperor Augustus expanded his empire and brought unity and peace to the most known world, he acquired the titles, Son of God, Imperator of Land and Sea, and the benefactor and savior of the whole world. In an effort to increase the tax base for the Roman treasury, Augustus exercised his sovereignty by decreeing a registration of all people to enrich himself In reality, Augustus was merely acting as God's puppet as the decree became the vehicle to get a young couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order to fulfill Micah's prophecy that the lowly city of Bethlehem would be exalted as the birthplace of the new king. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me the one be ruler of Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. When the angels announced the birth of the Messiah, the announcement is not made to the heads of state, but to lowly shepherds who were poor and considered the outsiders and unclean. They were close to the bottom of the social scale in the world. With the birth of Jesus, the powerful are already being brought down while the lowly are being lifted up as God subverts the existing social order to perpetuate such distinctions. And then once they are lifted up, they are filled with good things, which means the life that God gives is more satisfying than physical food. As Jesus testified to the disciples when they offered him food after his interaction with a Samaritan woman, he said, I have food you know not of. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. As our deacons will tell you, the task of exalting those who are outcast, poor in spirit and humble is the most fulfilling and rewarding work on earth as it sustains us beyond what we are humanly capable of. Mary concludes her song adapting the final words of Micah's prophecy which seals the source of her joy in God's covenantal love. He has helped Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Just as Hannah asked God to remember her, so Mary realizes on a grand scale that her pregnancy is rooted in God's covenantal faithfulness to remember his promises to the patriarchs. All of God's promises in the Old Testament are now reaching their fulfillment in the child being formed in Mary's womb. And the driving force behind it all, most important theological word in the Old Testament, is chesed, chesed, God's loyal love to remember his promises that he made. Centuries may come and go but God never forgets. Amen? Amen. Now, one more thing. It's important to note that Mary's praise is going to be severely challenged by severe suffering. As N.T. Wright observes, a sword will pierce her soul, she is told when Jesus is a baby. She will lose him for three days when he's 12. She will think he's gone mad when he's 30. She will despair completely for a further three days in Jerusalem as the God, as the God she now wildly celebrates seems to have deceived her. All of us who sing her songs should remember these things too, but the moment of triumph will return with Easter and Pentecost, and this time it will not be taken away from her. Praise celebrates the glorious future, and brings it forward into the present. And though it did not prevent Mary from enduring incredible suffering despite this pain, the praise still stands sacred and true. Do you hear the people sing? Lost in the valley of the night, it is the music of a people who are climbing to the light. For the wretched of the earth, there is a flame that never dies. Even the darkest night will end, and the sun will rise. Amen. Now receive this benediction. Almighty Father, whose will it is to restore all things and thy beloved, beloved Son, the King of all, govern the hearts and minds of those in authority and bring the families of all the nations divided and torn apart by the ravages of sin to be subject to his just and gentle rule who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. May you be filled with the wonder of Mary, the obedience of Joseph, the radiant joy of the angels, the eagerness of the shepherds, and the peace of the Christ child. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bless you now and forever and ever. Amen. Amen.